Well, we're at the conclusion of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which is called 1 Corinthians, and I have to say it's been an interesting read, hasn't it? It's a pretty interesting read, reading about the Corinthians. You remember we started out uh, recognizing that uh, in this letter Paul has ten distinct significant problems to correct, and he's just been about correction, correction, correction over and over. So when you read uh, 1 Corinthians, you kind of don't want to just take everything in there is what you're supposed to do uh, because a lot of it's what the Corinthians are doing wrong and Paul's correcting them and so we need to read it in that way. There's a lot of correction for the church on various things that seem like things we would never do but we find at their core that they are things that we do, aren't they? And uh, this is not a summary sermon so I'm not going to re-preach those 10 problems that Paul had to correct. I'm just saying, remember back and, uh, and look in your Bible and you'll find them. And, and one of the things that's so difficult about 1 Corinthians is uh, the context when we read Scripture is always what drives our understanding. Everything happens within a context. And the problem with 1 Corinthians is that so much of the context is hidden. So much of the critical things we need to know about what the Corinthians are doing just aren't apparent to us. And it just takes an extra, a few extra readings and a little extra study to try to understand why is Paul talking this way about such a positive topic it somehow, somehow comes off sounding negative. Well, it's because he's addressing what these Corinthians are saying. And so context is critical to our understanding. I think it's why there are so many misunderstandings that come out of 1 Corinthians. And we've talked about them already. I'm not going to re-preach those either. But what we see over and over, because this is, this is important, what we see over and over and what we said from the very beginning is that these Corinthians are a bit worldly, and, uh, and they really look out into culture and find things that are valued in culture, and they appropriate them. They, they say, hey, this is the way to go about something. And they take them and they say, this is the way to go about being spiritual. Now, there's something admirable about wanting to grow in your spirituality and wanting to be spiritual. It means, first of all, having the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's spiritual. And then growing in the grace that the Holy Spirit gives. And the the Corinthians found themselves so enamored with so many things out in the world, worldly philosophies, worldly speakers, who are just frankly better than your preacher standing up here this way. They're just better. Let's value speaking ability instead of content. That's a lot of what the Corinthians did. Valuing their rights. We, we get to do these things. I can see it. Yeah, but you know, you're, you're really messing up your brothers and sisters by exerting those rights in ways that are compromising their faith because they're watching you and they're getting the wrong message. So all kinds of things that the Corinthians were doing that, uh, that were just corrupting the church. And every single one of them was bringing a different division. I mean, I think of them like a piece of glass that shatters and there's just cracks everywhere. They're just fractured when a church is supposed to be unified in Christ, to have a unity because we're, we're now the body of Christ. And they have this self-centered spirituality. It's all about me. It's this rampant individualism. It's just like us today. My individualism matters. My personal autonomy matters. I think of that above the body. And that's what they were doing in Corinth. It's something we have to fight. Because we, we swim in a culture, in a world, in a life that we've been told, that's right, you be you. Forget them. It's about your self-actualization. God says, there's, a, there's an actualization to the body of Christ, which is the church, which is beautiful and lovely. And it's majestic and true. And it loves others. And that's what God's after. 
with these Corinthians. We found that uh, 1 Corinthians, it, it wasn't that much of a theological letter. There's not a lot of doctrinal things laid down here. There is a pretty pastoral approach to this congregation that's really struggling in multiple ways. Paul's not a mean ogre. He's actually being very kind to them and yet firm where he has to be firm for the sake of their souls. But there's all of this individualism, this self-promotion of their own spirituality and division because there is no love. Love's the thing that's missing. And the, the love that's missing most is their love for Christ. They love the Spirit. And they love the gifts. And they love the things they do. But because they don't love Christ first, they don't love one another. And it's a massive problem in the church that Paul's trying to correct, even in this last chapter. Because remember how much time he spent saying, look, it's not just you. You're a body. You have to think of yourselves as the church of God. You have to think of yourself as the collective people who have been sanctified in Christ. You are the church of God. Now be the church of God. And he says, you're like a body. You're supposed to be functioning together so that this oneness, this one body, united in Christ, is built up in love and is itself a witness to the world, to Christ's love. So that's why in chapter 16, I think, Paul ends his letter with, with one topic in mind. It's love. It is that the church is to abound in love. You just can't miss it. As we read through it, you'll see. But if you want to look at your sermon outline, you'll see this, this theme. We are to abound in love for one another by being watchful, by standing firm in the faith, by maturing in the faith, and by being strengthened in the faith because we are the church of God. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit my letter to carry out your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, well, they may accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may uh, help me on my way, help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, the other, uh, you and the other brothers, but it, is, it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Now, I urge you, brothers, you know, the, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Well, Paul begins with instructions for an offering. It's a well-known offering in the New Testament. The saints in Jerusalem are persecuted Jews. Uh, they're, They're in a time of famine. In, uh, throughout Judea in that area, and this is a benevolence offering. It's not the church's regular offering. It's a special offering to care for the needs of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering from famine and persecution. Paul was asked to do this. He was asked by the Jerusalem council to take up this offering, and his response to that request back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, was to remember the poor was the very thing I was eager to do. To remember those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem was the very thing I was eager to do. He references the, uh, this offering in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. He says, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. So we know this offering. And, uh, it, and it's, it's not the church's regular offering. It's this special offering to benefit some believers in another church far, far away whom they may never see And you're kind of wondering, well, how are the Corinthians responding to that? I mean, they're not so generous with one another. How are they doing with this church? And I think that's that's the opportunity that Paul's giving them. He's giving an opportunity to love. He's giving them an opportunity to serve someone other than themselves. Brothers and sisters who aren't even in their church. They're not even in a nearby church. Now, the Corinthians have asked something about this offering in their letter to Paul. We know that because of this grammatical marker that Paul uses, now concerning, uh, which he he regularly uses when he's answering questions from the letter that was taken to him. Uh, So they've already been asked to contribute. In fact, we know from 2 Corinthians that in true Corinthian fashion, they've already boasted about how super their offering's going to be. Oh man, we're going to take up such an offering here in Corinth. You won't believe it because we're so super spiritual. And so Paul responds and he gives them these instructions. Give a little each Sunday so that the money is already saved up when he gets there. Give in accordance with your own income. Give proportionately. Select a team of trustworthy men to take the money to Jerusalem. And they can accompany Paul when he goes back to Jerusalem if they'd like to. This team of men will provide protection. It's dangerous traveling all the way to Jerusalem with a bunch of money. Uh, But also accountability, right? Uh, That's an important thing. Uh, It's important for the church to handle its money well so that the purity of the gospel is maintained, right? You see the connection there? Notice that Paul wants, Paul wants no collection to take place while he's there. You do that on your own. 
so that no one will think that it's remuneration for me. Nobody's confused that you have to pay for the free gospel. And Paul won't be in charge of taking the offering to Jerusalem. The Corinthians are. So that no charge of greed can be brought against Paul, can be brought against the apostle, can be brought against the gospel. Oh, that's just another one of those messages. It's a different message, but it's still just there to make money, like all of the Corinthian orators do. These are important safeguards for Paul, for the church, and for the gospel to maintain its purity. But those are all just logistics, right? What's really happening here is that the Corinthians are being given a real chance in their hearts to care about others in a tangible way, an opportunity to love. It's a real chance to not seek their own, but to seek the good of others. Some, some of these things, I promise not to go back and re-preach old sermons about Corinthians, but some of those phrases you should recognize from earlier. Those are the things that they did. They sought their own above others. It's an opportunity to love. You, you may think about uh, James chapter 2, where James says that faith without tangible works of love for the brethren is not enough. It's not real faith. It doesn't express real love. It's not enough to wish your brother or sister well in their adversity. Go, go, be filled, be warmed. You have to act. You have to back it up with some actual help. We're to actually give what is ours to them for our good. You have a, you have a right to keep what's yours. You remember that echo from earlier in Paul's letter. You have a right to keep what's yours, but you also have been loved by Christ so that you are now free to love others. You're free to be generous to others. And this opportunity, this offering is an opportunity to exercise and display love for the brethren. What brethren? Jewish brethren. But the, the Corinthian church is predominantly a Gentile church. Uh, the Jewish church, or the church in Jerusalem is predominantly a Jewish church. And so this offering is going to show a couple of things. It's going to show that the gospel unites Jew and Gentile. And it unites believers from Macedonia to Judea. That's what the gospel does. Because the gospel transforms people into loving people. There's a, little quote, there's a little quote from Martin Luther. It goes a little something like, you don't have faith unless your faith reaches all the way back to your pocketbook. That you know, was his, his way of just telling people, that's right, you've got to have an active faith, a giving faith. Unfortunately, Paul will have to again address this same offering in his second letter to the Corinthians. Because they will be slow to love in this way. And Paul will have to exhort them to follow through on the promise that they've made. The issue isn't money. The issue is love. It takes love to give this offering. Love requires a heart that's been changed to love with the love of God. That's what Paul's going after. Their, their super offering will require a super love. This is the same offering and the same instruction that Paul gives to all the churches. It's not, it's not just them, it's everybody. Everybody should, every church should love in this way. And he mentions the churches in Galatia because uh, with, uh, with his comparison to Christianity, if, if this church is supposed to love, then all the churches are supposed to love. This compassion is supposed to be a hallmark of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should look the same in all the churches. You know, his, his word for gift, it's charis. It's grace. It's a grace gift to the church. It just happens to be another local church. You're giving, you're giving grace with the grace with which you've received, Paul is telling them. 
It's a grace gift that reflects that you've received grace from God. So this grace giving is both, it becomes both a thanksgiving to God, because I'm giving what I received. But it's also a praise to God. Praise God, look what he did. He, He made me someone who loves. He made me someone who's willing to care about somebody else and seek out their good and actually take something out of my pocketbook and give it to them. Because it's an act that's grounded in the gospel, a heart that loves, and so it's an act of thanksgiving and an act of praise. So there's to be love for people, even people in other churches, believers, even believers in other churches. And then as we read, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a call to support gospel workers. Paul shares his travel plans, uh, as well as the plans of Timothy and Apollos. Uh, in verses 5 to 9, Paul's going to travel, or he hopes to travel, he intends to travel to Macedonia, and may stay with the Corinthians just long enough for them to do what? Have an opportunity to provide him support. Have they learned their lesson about supporting apostles yet? He spent a couple of chapters on that, remember? Will you support him in his gospel mission? Remember back in uh, chapter 9, the Corinthians, they had a duty to support Paul. But Paul set himself over to the side to not receive their support. Why? Because they didn't understand it. They They were confusing it with the same payment that you give to orators and speakers based on their ability to amaze you and entertain you and he didn't want that payment confused with the free gospel that's offered by the apostle that's offered by the church had they learned the lesson that supporting the gospel ministry is not is not giving to a greedy man will they support his gospel mission now he's he he didn't allow them the opportunity while he was with them Now, if they've learned, he's going to allow them the opportunity as he passes through. So this grace giving is is uh, is important. There's, you know, he says he's what he doesn't want them to see is that uh, you know giving is not muzzling the ox while he's while he's threshing. You need to not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Because Paul is having to discipline and correct this congregation so much. He doesn't really want to have just kind of a brief visit. You know, you know how that is, right? When you're at con- maybe you're in conflict with somebody, and uh, you're going to have a, a real quick passing, and so the only thing that's going to happen in that quick passing is kind of the pleasantries. It's kind of like pretending the, the issue isn't there. It's not helpful. You, you want to you wait till there's a time when you can both sit down and talk about something. I think that's, I think that's how Paul's approaching this. He's saying, I, I, I don't want to come for just a little while. I don't think that would be helpful uh, to either of us. Uh, he wants to spend enough time to actually work through some things with them. But he says, you know what, it's up to the Lord. We're, we're back to the, to the book of James, right? If the Lord wills, I want to come visit if the Lord wills. Uh, but Paul will do what the Lord permits. And it will turn out, actually, that Paul will not be able to visit them. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's going to remain in Ephesus, he tells us. And, and he will, because God has opened a door for fruitful and effective gospel ministry there and then. And so that's where the Lord would have him, even though he's, he's got lots of strong adversaries there. Remember, remember a chapter back when he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enduring the beasts in Ephesus here uh, because they were, they were opposing him so strongly. But he wants them to support his apostolic ministry beyond, beyond their own congregation. I'm, I'm going to be passing through and I'm going to be preaching the gospel somewhere else. Would you support that gospel ministry? 
And he wants him to support other gospel ministers as well. It's not just him. Timothy has traveled to Corinth in verses 10 and 11, perhaps carrying this letter. I think so. And Paul has already written back in chapter 4, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Again, (laughs) I'm not singling you out, and you need to understand that you're not the only church in the world. All of the churches are called to live in this way, to abound in love for one another and for people in other churches. You know, if some of the church or some of the people in the Corinthian church reject Paul, how badly do you think they would treat Timothy, his young protege? And, and we know from First Timothy that Timothy, Timothy can be a little timid. And so Paul says, what I want you to do is I want you to put Timothy at ease. I, I don't want you to just be passable in your hospitality. I want him to feel at ease among you. I want you to invite him in. Timothy's doing the same work of the Lord that, that Paul's doing. and he's, That means he's being steadfast and immovable and always abounding in this work of the Lord. So be hospitable and loving towards him. Here's another opportunity for you to love. And then he goes, he actually goes a little further, doesn't he? We read this. He says, don't despise him. <laughs> okay. Paul, Paul has an idea. He's anticipating what Timothy may, may encounter from some of the people in the church in Corinth. He says, don't despise him. Don't do that. Don't be skeptical and despising him in your heart. There's a, there's a little accountability thrown in there because he's coming back to me. <laughs> I'm going to hear about it. Uh, we're going to connect uh, along with the guys who are taking the offering. We're all going to connect on our way back to Jerusalem. And, and so what I want you to do is to treat Timothy well and send him back with peace from you to me. Do that. Love him in that way. I mean, this is a church that we've looked at that does not know how to love their own teachers. And so Paul tells them to love this young teacher that he has sent to them to apply the corrections that he has written down in this letter. He's saying, love him. Now, Apollos does not travel, we see in verse 12. And it appears that, since Paul's responding to a letter, that the Corinthians said, gosh, we sure would like some really good teaching uh, let's write Paul and ask him to send Apollos, right? <laughs> just, oh, I don't know. My feelings might be a little bit hurt. Uh, if, uh, you know, if I was gone a week or two and you wrote me a letter and said, gosh, we'd really like you to send somebody from another church to preach here. That would be just, just so great, you know, Scott. And, you know, Paul, Paul, though, Paul doesn't throw Apollos under the bus. Paul doesn't uh, exhort them uh, in this. He, he checks with Apollos. In fact, he really tries to bring about what they've requested. I exhorted him. But, Apollos says, the Lord's not willing right now. He'll come when he can. He went to bat for them to get their favorite preacher over to them. It didn't work out, and so he tells them. And and he's not mad. You know, Paul and Apollos were never in competition with one another. They never were. And he does the best to get them their full wish that Apollos would come. But, but it's not going to happen. So, so poor Corinthians, uh, they don't want Paul. They don't get Apollos. But they do get Timothy, who now they have to be nice to. Well, good, because apparently that's what they need and the Lord knows it. And the, the Corinthians don't even know what Paul's doing here on their behalf and with, with Apollos. He's, he's actually showing love towards Apollos and in upholding his ministry. He's showing love to them. He wasn't able to fulfill their request, but he sure tried. 
You know, that happens in the church, right? You don't want to storm off when you don't get your way. People probably tried. You might not have seen it, but people probably went to bat. There's a lot of things that happen like that. Let me pick up in, uh, in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the truth, in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is the brief final exhortation. He's going to have one more instruction, but this is the brief final exhortation that we find in Paul's letter. And if you remember anything in chapter 16, remember this. He says these things. They're just brief little things that you need to do. He says, be watchful. It means to be awake. Be alert. But watchful for what? That's a good question. It's the obvious question. I think there, I think there are two ways in which we are regularly told to be watchful in the New Testament. Uh, Christians and the church are to be watchful for the return of Christ. It's what we're doing. We're waiting with open eyes for the return of Christ. And I think, uh, I think this is very much on Paul's heart. Giving his rejoicing at our bodily resurrection in chapter 15, just a few verses before this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's very much on his mind. So one part of being watchful is the church waiting and watching for the glorious appearing of our blessed hope, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be watchful for that. And the other part of being watchful, I think, is just is being on alert to danger. Right. Looking, for what, looking for what's to come, looking out for what could happen right now. To be sober, with eyes opened to Christ's enemies, and anything that might compromise my faith, our faith, ready to stand and fight against anything that would attack the gospel or attack our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be watchful for such things. Paul is exhorting us today to be on guard against the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion to devour us. That's what he's saying. We, we read that in 1 Peter chapter 5. There are less obvious ways to come under attack that we should be watchful for than something as obvious as a prowling lion. You know, there's nothing inherently sinful about your cell phone. You may be reading your Bible on your smartphone this morning. Well, that's a good use. And yet, how effective, let me ask you, how effective is that device in distracting you from being watchful of the things you should be watchful for? How easy is it for that little thing? Maybe it even has a, a really special titanium cover. How, how, how easy is it for that little thing, that little lightweight thing, to lull you to sleep? I'm, I'm, let me ask you a different question. How often has the next, chat, the next text message actually changed your life? Right? Just another text. We'll do it all day long, every day, every week, and never receive a text that changes our life. But we act like, this is going to change my life. i got to look right now. How easy is it for your interests 
on your cell phone to just erase a half hour of your day or more. I'm interested. I'll look at my watch. Oh, there's a phone on my watch. I'm like, <laughs> there's, there's a phone and a camera and a, and a, and a clock all right here. And, and we can just fritter away that we can be so easily distracted by something. And it happens to all of us. That's why I think it's relevant to mention. I mean, how, how willing are you to be influenced? Think about that. Nobody tells me what to do, except my influencers, my content creators. Or how often do we criticize others with seeming impunity? Oh, let me just fire this back. Let me just post this. You know, Christians and churches have to be watchful and attentive of the grace of the Lord and alert to be ready to fight off any distraction and temptation that would, that would weaken our faith. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. The gospel of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and appearing, that's what we're to stand firm in. That's the faith. Stand firm and be immovable in the faith. This is why you must be watchful and sober about the things that might corrupt your faith because you're supposed to stand firm in it and not let it be eroded. It's concerning to see a Christian wavering in their faith, isn't it? Have you seen a brother or sister really wavering in their faith? It's painful. It's disconcerting. We, we know something's terribly wrong when a brother or sister is, is flailing to try to persevere. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Later in, in chapter 4, that was chapter 1, in chapter 4 he says, stand firm in the Lord. When he says to stand firm in the faith, he's saying stand firm in the gospel. He doesn't mean stand firm in your faith. Your ability to trust, your resolve to depend. He's not saying stand, stand firm in that. He's not saying try harder, try harder. No, he's saying stand firm in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Stand firm in the good news of Jesus who was crucified and buried and on the third day rose from the dead and appeared to many. Hold fast to Christ. Stand firm in Christ. Nothing else. No distractions. Stand in Him, the Savior of sinners. This is the way to persevere. Not in our effort, but in our need and dependence upon Him. God is the one who has loved us and called us. Remember the beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Christ has sanctified us and given us his spirit and been gracious to us. He will sustain us to the end. All of these things Paul has written all the way back at the beginning of his letter so that we would hear echoes of them now at the end of the letter. So stand firm in him. In joy and in sorrow, he will not lose us. He will preserve us guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Next, Paul says, act like men. Brilliant. 
Act like men. You know, this is another phrase that, you know, some have used to criticize Paul, criticize Paul with, right? He's, a, he's one of those he-man woman haters, and they'll say, see, Paul wants everybody to be like a man. Or, see, Paul, Paul's only writing to men. Some commentators um, put act like a man and be strong together. They say, okay, these, these mean the same thing. Let's put them together. Uh, act like a man, be strong. Together, together it, it means that men and women are to be strong and courageous and brave the way men kind of are. As if women can't be brave. I, mean, I, just, I just think it's not a right understanding. I think the gender war fought over Paul's language in 1 Corinthians is unfortunate. And I think that every single time it misses the point. There is one other place in Paul's letter where he says to act like a man. Do you remember it? It's in the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I began to act like a man. When Paul says, act like a man, he's not saying, act like a man as opposed to a woman. He is saying, act like a man as opposed to a child. Behave like adults. In the faith. Maybe we can call that Christian adulting. Act like an adult. Be mature in the faith. The church should be mature. Christians should act and think and reason out of a mature understanding of the true knowledge of God that we've been given and that we're growing in. I probably shouldn't ask this question, but I will. Does the church today seem like a mature church to you? The church at large. Does Christianity today seem like a mature faith? Or is the church just playing Christianity? Are we just playing at Christianity? God calls us to be adults, to be grown-ups, to be responsible with the gift that's been given to us. And when it comes to the gospel, in our time and place, in this generation, I think not only this generation, but a lot of this generation of Christians in our world today prefer to play. <laughs> you remember Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, and there were the people. They were supposed to be serious. They were supposed to be serious. But Moses said, they made a calf, they had a party, because they preferred to play. Don't you think that immaturity characterizes much of what happens in church today? So much of Christianity just isn't sober. It's just not serious. And it could be that it's immature because our culture's immature and not serious and prefers to play. I mean, whatever's going on around you, God says, be mature. Act mature in the gospel faith. Then he says, be strong. 
And the verb tense here is not just, so it's not just to be strong, it's more to make strong. And, and not just to make strong, to make stronger. Like that's, I think, I think we could pro- the closest we can probably become is strengthen. Strengthen. So here's a, place, here's a place where this same verb tense is used. It's in Luke chapter 1 when John the Baptist was growing up. And Luke writes, he grew and became strong. It's kind of a picture maybe. It's not that he was strong, but that he was becoming stronger. It's dynamic. It's the same thing that Luke writes of Jesus in chapter 2 of Luke, that he grew and became strong in the Spirit. And we, we see this same, this same verb tense used by the, uh, applied to the church by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, when he prays that God would grant according to his riches in glory that you would be strengthened in might by the Spirit and the inner man. That you would be strengthened in might by the Spirit and the inner man. Paul is saying that you need to be strengthened. <laughs> you need help. You Corinthians who can do it all on your own, you know, you're flailing. You're flailing. You need grace to be strengthened. Pay attention to the Spirit who is strengthening you on the inside to be watchful and to stand firm, to be growing in strength, to be mature among people who prefer to play. I think Paul would say to the Corinthians and us, stop caving to culture. Stop worrying so much about how they're doing it. Stop using cultural methods to be spiritual. They don't work. Stick to the apostles' teaching and be strong in it. The Corinthians are always going for celebrity status, right? Look at me. Look at me. In the church, look at me. Look at how superior my spirituality is. Don't go for spiritual celebrity status. Just love one another. I've got the solution. Just love one another, Paul says. It takes strength to do that. True spirituality needs the Spirit's might. So desire and hunger for the Spirit's might. You'll need Him because you're going to need Him because this is what you're supposed to do. He says in verse 14, Let all that you do be done in love. Do all these things so that everything you do is done in love. That's the goal. This is the theological message of this entire letter. The Corinthians have problems being pure and united. In order to be mature and pure and in unity with one another, they must mature in love. You know, in practical terms, I've been thinking about this. See if you agree with me. In practical terms, when we say we want unity, I think what we kind of want is uniformity. You know the difference, right? To be united or to be the same. Because, gosh, it would just be so easy if we were just all the same. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Uniformity would just make unity so much easier. Uh, I I know we're supposed to want to be united, but gosh, I just really nice if we were just uniform. And then, you know, there wouldn't be all this conflict and we wouldn't have different opinions and stuff like that. 
Wouldn't it be great if we just all felt the same way about everything? But we don't. That's never going to happen. We have different views about things. We have different opinions about things. Conflict among us is always to be expected at some level. Now, hopefully it's at the level of who's your favorite football team, which today is the Lions, in case you were wondering. Even related to church things, we may prefer doing things in different ways. But it's the love of Christ that we have for one another that causes us to forbear and forgive with one another. Uniformity is not expected or even, I don't think, possible. Of course you're going to have differences of opinion. Of course you're going to tweak each other every now and then. That's not the end. It's not the worst thing that can happen. For you to be a little embarrassed because of relational things that are taking place. What's, what's miraculous is that we have the love of Christ within us so that we can forbear and forgive one another because we love one another. And we know what that sacrificial love looks like. And we know that when, we, when someone loves another sacrificially, it's life-giving. Christ was raised a life-giving spirit. Even when we quarrel, Paul, Paul would say, let your quarreling be done in love. You go ahead and have it right out. But remember that you're quarreling in love. It's because love matures Christians. I mean, go, go back to chapter 13, and you should do that over and over, and learn to let all that you do be done in love. Keep reading it until that happens. And this is, this is Paul's final exhortation. You know what you Christians, what you Corinthians really need? You need to abound in love. You need to abound in love. Now let me pick up in verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because Achaicus, because they have lifted or, or made me made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, or sometimes Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another. With a holy kiss. You, you have to think, when we've, when we've seen all of the division in the church in Corinth, and you've got all of the people vying for super spirituality. We're the most spiritual. We're, no, 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 we're the most spiritual. No, we have knowledge. No, oh, but, but we have riches. You know, they're, they're just, everybody's vying to have the spotlight. And we know that they took that, they took that uh, idea and that desire out of culture and said, yeah, that's how it should be in the church. You know, the Corinthians are puffed up. They're self-promoting, always comparing themselves to see who's the more spiritual. They all, each, wanted to be seen as celebrities in their own church. When you come in the door, I want you to know I'm the special one in the church. That's what they wanted. We've seen this throughout the letter. They promote their best orders. They brag about having knowledge that others don't. 
They brag about being wise when others are stupid. They saw themselves as wise, powerful, and noble. Remember, and Paul has to say, not many. Not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful. They held up the rich among them. They had special privileges. They could get away with more sin. They exalted themselves based on their spiritual gifts. (laughs) Here's the grace of God to you. Now brag against your brothers and sisters about how gracious God's been to you and how pathetic their gifts are. We can almost imagine them expecting Paul to mention somebody in the church towards the end of the letter. And remember, they're, they're sitting in the big congregation and a church leader has come out and he's taken this letter written from Paul and he's reading from start to end. And he gets to this spot in chapter 16. And we can almost imagine them saying to themselves, who's Paul going to mention? Who do you think Paul's, Paul's going to highlight? Who do you think the apostle's going to hold up? Because I'm kind of thinking it should be me. I'm kind of thinking it should be me. Well, I, I'm sure that's true, but I think it'll be me too. <laughs> Maybe it'll be us. What's Paul? I, yeah, I bet it's me uh, based on how spiritual I am. Well, you know, it certainly won't be on them. They don't prophesy. They don't speak in tongues. Can't be them. And they exalted themselves in these ways. And you can, you can say, you know, you can hear them saying these kinds of things. Oh, he's not as gifted as I am. She's not, not her. She's not gifted. And so Paul says, you know that the household of Stephanus, okay, the cat's out of the bag. Right, The name has been said out loud. The household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And just as surely as you're looking at me now, everybody's eyes turn to find the family of Stephanus, right? Or Stephanus. He just got mentioned in the letter. All eyes on Stephanus. It, you know, it might have been very uncomfortable for Stephanus at that moment to be, to be singled out like that to hear his name read out loud at the end of this letter. Stephanus and two members of his household, probably his bondservants, his slaves, Fortunatus and Achaicus. What makes them so special? Is it any of the reasons that the people in the church in Corinth thought made them special? Is it any of those reasons that Stephanus and his household are mentioned? Well, Paul says it's two things. One, they were the first converts of Paul's gospel preaching ministry in that area, in that whole area. And we would say, okay, that's notable. That's notable. They've been Christians longer than anybody else in Achaia or in Corinth. But Paul doesn't actually say they were his first converts. Paul says in Greek... They were the first fruits. They were the first fruits of the gospel in Corinth. Does that make them the first converts? Yes, but does it make them more? I think it does. Because we talked about Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection and what that looked like for the whole resurrection, for the whole crop to be harvested. Paul says in Greek that they were the first fruits of the gospel in Corinth, which means something more. They're the first fruits of a harvest of faithful gospel servants. They are what the whole harvest is supposed to look like. 
First, middle, and last fruits are supposed to look like this. They're supposed to look like faithful servants. They're representative of the whole harvest as the first fruits of that harvest. The whole church in Corinth is supposed to be like this, faithful gospel servants. It's more than just being first, which is exactly what Paul purposely draws attention to about these men, isn't it? From the beginning, they devoted themselves to you, he says, to the service of the saints. Paul is saying that Stephanus and his family, his household, look like what people in the church should look like. Following Jesus should look like this. Let me draw your attention to this. And it doesn't look like pushing and shoving to be seen as celebrities in the church. It doesn't look like that. It looks like serving the whole body. Knowing that Christ has made Stephanus and his family servants in Christ's church not, celebrate, not, not celebrities in the church. That wasn't the goal. Knowing that, Stephanus knows that the church is the body of Christ and that he and his family are members of it. See how that theology falls into place? So they do not seek their own good. They seek the good of the church. They know that whatever they do, they're to do all to the glory of God. All the things that the Corinthians weren't doing. And so Paul instructs the Corinthians to do two things with, these, with this household. In verse 18, he says, give them recognition. Give them recognition. Recognition is precisely, think about it, recognition is the one thing that precisely all of the self-promoting people in Corinth wanted. They wanted recognition. They wanted to be the one whose name was read. But they wanted recognition for themselves and for wrong reasons. Paul says, recognize the servants among you. Recognize their devotion to you. Recognize their Christ-likeness, because that's what they're exhibiting. Recognize their love. Recognize their love. Give them recognition, because this is what all of you are to be going after. You know what they are? They're grace gifts to the church. They're grace gifts to the church. The Holy Spirit has manifested himself through their service to the body for its building up. Definition of a grace gift. Stephanus and his household are one. And how do they do that? They do that in the same way that they, they've done for Paul. You know, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, by the way, Fortunatus just means fortunate. He's a lucky guy, right? Achaicus just happens to be from Achaia. That's, those are their names. And uh, they visited Paul in Ephesus. They, they've gone to see Paul. Uh, they, they're probably delivering the letter that Paul's now writing back to respond to. So they went there in service of the church, not, not just for nothing else, but while they're there, while they're there, they're just refreshing the brother. <laughs> I haven't seen you guys in, in a while. It's been, it's been four years, maybe five, since Paul was in Corinth, and and here they come, 
And, uh, and it just, it's just refreshing to Paul to see them and to hear from the church. And he uses this, this odd phrase, we wouldn't say it this way, but he's made up for what the Corinthians haven't done, which is be present with him. They, they're, they're representatives from the church to him. And in that way, uh, their, their visit is more than just them. It's, it's a visit from the whole church. They just happen to be the representatives. And the Holy Spirit manifests himself in their service to Paul in that way, and, and it builds up the church as well. Paul loves the church, and he misses them. And Paul says they refreshed his spirit, and that, and that he knows that they refresh the spirits of the Corinthians as well. See, Paul, Paul isn't picking favorites. Paul isn't trying to select celebrities. Uh, he's highlighting examples of loving servants who are devoted to building up the body in love. And he says, you know when that happens? You should recognize them. And he tells them to do a second, more important thing. He says, subject yourselves to them and to those who are, I would say, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Those who are always abounding in the work of the Lord, submit yourself, subject yourself to them. Now, there are are various calls to submission Throughout the New Testament, we know that there are some particular calls for a wife to submit to her husband, for children to submit to their parents, for slaves to submit to their masters. Uh, We know that Paul's already already had to remind them about headship in the church when he was talking about their worship services. You need to submit to the leadership in the church. There's there's headship abounding here. But the, the word submission that he used here, he's using it in a little different way. The word submission here means to arrange yourself under. Arrange yourself under these people like Stephanus. I heard this this great explanation of, I think it's very helpful, explanation of of submission uh, from somebody. They said, uh, when we think of submission, you and I, we often think about wrestling, right? We think about wrestling when we think of submission. We think there's some conflict going on Someone's struggling, and someone's struggling to be master. That's kind of how we think of submission. And I think in general that's right. But that's not what this Greek word means at all. It means for you to voluntarily say, you know, that's a person I want to be like. I've recognized their Christ-likeness. I've recognized that they've arranged their lives to be servants devoted servants to me and to the church. And that's a person I want to be like. I want to follow them. I want to arrange myself under them so that I follow them and do things the way that they do. I'm going to arrange myself under them and rather than pushing and fighting to prove to everyone I'm better, I just I want to be more like them. And so that's the, that's the submission that Paul's talking about. When you see an example of abounding in love. Submit to it. It's it's really heart submission, isn't it? We're so worried about reputational submission. What do people think if I submit myself to that and behave in that way? It's really heart submission. It's to say that I'm not in competition with that grace gift of humble, Loving, refreshing. 
I mean, how, do you, how would you like to be the person who stands up, you know, in our next parent share service and says, I'm competing with everybody who's trying to be gracious, loving, and, and, and refreshing. I am going to smack you down with grace, love, and refreshness. I mean, who, who wants to be that guy? That's, that's nuts. Arrange yourself under them, under this example of grace, gift, of humble, loving, refreshing. I want to be a grace gift that way too. The Corinthians, you know what the Corinthians did? The Corinthians drained people. Oh my gosh, you're draining me. We feel it when we read the letter. Paul says, Stephanus and his household, they refresh people. I'm going to arrange myself under him because he's an example of the grace of God at work in the church and his life points to Christ. I want my life to point to Christ. I choose to be like the first fruits of the body so that I would be more like Christ who served us by being the first fruits of the resurrection. I want to lay down my life to serve others and in that way really come to life. A life that loves and serves others in the church. The household of Stephanus is an example of Christians abounding in love. That's why they're here. And so are, so are the other churches. Several times throughout the letter, Paul says, you know, it's true of you, but it's, it's true of all the churches. Now, you're not the only one. If the church in Corinth is to abound in love, then it must be that all of the churches are to abound in love. All of the churches are supposed to look like that. That's supposed to be distinctive and characteristic of them. And so you've got all these people chiming in to say, hi, I remember when I was a kid, my mom was a letter writer. Do, do we need a history lecture as to what letter writing is? We, we, made it, we made it a history lecture to explain what emailing is. We, you know, everybody's just messages now. In some form of messaging, there were, before that there was actually composing an email, and before that there was actually handwriting a letter on a piece of paper. And my, my mom was known for her lovely cursive handwriting. Uh, it, it wasn't just how fast could you get the letters down. It was how nice could you make that look. And, and mom had this beautiful handwriting. And, and so after, after, after feeding and cleaning up after six kids, after dinner time, uh, in the evening, uh, my brother and I, we would go in and watch Gunsmoke with dad. But mom would sit down at the kitchen table and mom would write letters to family. And, uh, and mom would be writing and, uh, you know, when there was a commercial... And uh, we ran into pop popcorn so we could watch the second half of Gunsmoke. Uh, you know, I might say, Mom, who are you writing? She said, well, I'm writing to your Uncle Glenn and Aunt Marie Lou. And I would say, are you writing to Uncle Glenn and Aunt Marie Lou? And she said, I am. Said, oh, 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 tell David I said hi. David's my cousin. David's my cousin. I've told you about David before. We, in summers, I got to go down to Uncle Glenn and Aunt Marie Lou's farm and spend a couple of weeks out on the farm you know, riding motorcycles and shooting guns and fun things like that that every child should be involved in. And, um, and so we got, I got to do all that stuff. So, oh, please tell David hi. Tell, tell, tell him Scott says hi to David. So mom would, mom would get to the point in her letter. It was always the same. Well, I have to go now. <laughs> like they're watching and she has to go do something, you know. Well, I have to go now. Tell David Scott says hi. Love, Bertha. Because my mom's name is Bertha. And this is what's kind of like that. When others find out that Paul's sending a letter to the Corinthians, they all want to say hi. Oh, wait, are you writing to the Corinthians, Paul? We love the Corinthian church. We've been praying for the Corinthian church. 
Tell, tell them we said hi. Give them our greetings. It's like that. And so, so Paul includes these, these loving examples of all the churches in his letter to the Corinthians. They all want to wish them and send them their love and their greetings. The churches in, in Asia, that's not China, that's the Roman province of Asia, which is across the Aegean Sea from, from the Corinthians, and uh, they, they want to send their greeting. And, and Aquila and Prisca, formerly of Corinth, remember? When Paul first came to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he connected with, these, with this couple and participated in their business while they were planting the church and preaching the gospel. So formerly from Corinth, people know them, send their greeting along with, along with everybody in their church. And then all the brothers, <laughs> all the brothers say hi. All of Paul's team, all of Paul's co-workers in the gospel, they're with him in Ephesus now where he's writing the letter from, which would include Sosthenes from Corinth. We, we, we hear about him back in, in chapter 18 of Acts. Sosthenes is with him and a fellow worker now. And they all send their greeting. All these people from other churches far away are sending their love and their greetings to this church who has probably never sent a letter of greetings to any of those churches. But Paul says, hey, here's what the churches want to say to you. They're all examples of love from others to the Corinthians that Paul wants the church to see and hear and know because he wants them to copy. You need to love the people in your own church and you need to love other churches. In chapter 16, Paul is trying to draw love out of the Corinthians. I mean, we've read this letter. We know what it's like all the way up to chapter 15. And now he's saying, come on, here's some ways you can love. Give to the saints in Jerusalem. Prosper the gospel messengers like Paul and Timothy and Apollos as they go about their mission. Uh, you know, love, love people like Stephanus and his household. Think about how they love and love like them. All of these churches are sending you their love. Grow, grow some love. Draw some love out here to share. They're not even good at loving their own people, loving one another. And so I think Paul uses these greetings, and he does just a quick little turnaround. Did you notice it? By the way, don't forget to greet one another with a holy kiss. While he's trying to draw out all this love, while he's got these examples of love, some in their own congregation, other in other churches around Macedonia, all the way to Judea, while he's showing them all this, by the way, while you're receiving all these greetings of love, remember to greet one another with a holy kiss. A kiss is the way that families greeted one another in that culture. If you, if you look at, at people in the Middle East, people will greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. You've, you've seen that. And Paul wants every member of the church family to greet one another in the same way. You need to have some affection for one another. You should. You should have some affection for one another. It's, it's one thing to stand six feet away and say, uh, hi, how are you this morning? It's another thing to, to pat somebody on the shoulder and say, it's really good to see you. It's so good to see you matters. It matters. They should, 
the same way that they've been greeted with warm affection from people they don't even know, but who love them in Christ, they should be greeting one another warmly. When they gather at church, they should be warmly acknowledging one another. We should affectionately greet one another appropriately. Perhaps just a smile, a kind word, some eye contact, handshake, a hug, fist bump. Somehow, when we gather to worship, when we gather to pray on Wednesday nights, when we gather to fellowship in one another's homes during the week, loving people acknowledge one another affectionately. Paul's trying to draw this out of them. Draw this out of them. And then he, he finishes the letter in verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. So Paul has been dictating this letter. And now he finally takes takes the pen in his hand and he writes in his own hand his own greeting. After reading all these other greetings, he reads his own greeting, which is, and it's kind of like closing in prayer. And there are four key words in Paul's final greeting. I put them in your sermon outline for you. Anathema, Maranatha, Charis, and Agape. And you're probably already familiar with these Greek words. The word anathema means curse. And this may seem kind of like an unhappy pronouncement at the end of the letter. Uh, gosh, Paul, we kind of, could you just hit on a happy note, please? Could you just end on, a, on, an, end on an upbeat? Could you do that for us? And, and I think he clearly does. That, that's what I would argue. He, he is. But this is a sober warning to those who will not love. Nonetheless, I think pastoral, it's a pastoral tone that Paul's striking here. He's still emphasizing that we're called to abound in love. Look at the focus and the flow of the chapter. He says, You are to love your spiritual family by giving money generously to those in need, by showing hospitality to those passing through, by maturing in purity and unity, which only happens by maturing in love, by submitting to real servants and following them into deeper Christ-likeness, by feeling affection for brothers and sisters in Christ, by greeting them and, and thus reminding them that you care. By greeting each other affectionately. By loving the Lord. Awaiting His return eagerly. Maturing by means of His grace in the meantime. And warmly receiving love from spiritual shepherds. Don't you see? Those who will not love in these ways do not love the Lord. They're not spiritual no matter what they say or do. Because they're just noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. They're nothing because they do not love the Lord. What Paul is emphasizing is that this love of Jesus is the very foundation of the gospel. It's the very foundation of the church. It's the very foundation of everything Paul has been correcting them about in this letter. So he's actually has a very pastoral tone here as he reminds them of the love of Christ. Love the Lord that they need to have to stoke their love for one another. They need this love for Christ stoked. But he doesn't just, he doesn't dwell there on anathema. 
I mean, his tone really is love, and he moves immediately to another word, Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is who the Corinthians have been lacking throughout this entire letter. Do they ever bring up Jesus in the entire letter? No. They are so focused on themselves and their spiritual gifts, they never mention Jesus. It's Paul who has to bring up Jesus every one of the ten times he corrects them. Because love is stronger than their disagreements. Love is stronger than their immaturity. Love is stronger than their individualism. Love has resurrection power in it. It is because of Christ's love for us that we can be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our loving others isn't in vain. Because you wonder that sometimes. Am I laying down my life for this brother or sister? And I don't get any response. Not that I was looking for thank yous or anything, but I mean, okay. Is it in vain? Is it empty? It's not. It's not. Abounding and loving like the Lord would love is never in vain. So how do we go about doing that? By loving Jesus. That's what Paul's saying over and over. How do we become loving people? Paul prays this. It's the third word. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, the, the Greek word for grace is charis. God has given, remember, charismata, grace gifts to the church. Paul desires God's grace to these Corinthians to continue to transform them from the inside out so that they would have genuine love for Jesus and in that way genuine love and affection for one another. Lastly, Paul closes with the word agape, which means love. Paul desires for the Corinthians to know his love for them. Think about that for a minute. Don't you think that there were some people in Corinth who did not know or think that the Apostle Paul loved them? I think there are probably a few of them. There are certainly some Corinthians who have no love for Paul. So Paul writes, I love you all. I love you all. In my own hand, I write this greeting. I love you all. In the midst of their strong disagreements, in the midst of their division, in the midst of Paul's strong exhortations and corrections, he does everything in love. He still loves them all. He loves them, he says, in Christ Jesus. The truth is that we can only love one another if we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Loving Jesus is the heart of our faith. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one who is equal in glory with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one who is willing to humble himself and make himself of no reputation. Jesus Christ was the one who was willing to bear the curse, the anathema of God that was meant to fall on sinners. He bore our sin and our shame on the cross and he gave up his life to death and was buried. And he rose on the third day. And he appeared to give us life. Do you love this Jesus? If you love this Jesus, it changes everything. Everything. If you have no love for Jesus, that works out in the way that you treat people. And if you love Jesus, then it is his love that works its way out 
in the way that you love one another. Think about it. When we, when we love Jesus, we feel close to him. When we love him, we, we come to know him. When we love him, we seek to please him. When we love him, we're pleased and satisfied with him. When we love him, we love to be with his people. And together, to worship him and praise him and abound in love for him and for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. It is good and it is true and it is enduring and it is profitable for our souls to study and to meditate on. We pray that this word, that we would abound in the love of Christ towards others, would well up inside of us and overflow in an abundance of love that has changed our lives and that will change others. God, we thank you for your loving word, your gracious word. We pray that you would indeed change us and make us loving people for Christ's sake and for your glory. Amen.